In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So a hurricane swept across Florida this last week, and it was so bad, it, it caused many to be trapped in flooded homes, many who are awaiting rescue, several people have lost their lives, many will be devastated by the fallout as they continue to struggle to get their lives back on track. I met with a parishioner this last week who informed me that there was a, a, a some type of shooting event as well this past week, and I hadn't even checked the news, and so this totally was off my radar. And that's just what was on the news last week. There will be something else this week, whether it's more financial difficulties as our country deals with the impact of the pandemic, whether it's another school shooting, heaven forbid. And when faced with all of these troubles, whenever we're just aware of everything that's awful all at once, this access that we have to this information, I'm worried, sick, that this has a deadening effect on our consciences, that it's actually searing our consciences. And for those who are more cynical like me, this is an admission, um, it's just another day in the news cycle. Here's why I think that is. We aren't designed to carry the weight of all the disasters, all the injustices of this world on our shoulders at once. We are not made to do that. We're not designed that way. And so whenever we're faced with this constant uh, uh, slow drip, or actually like a fire hose drip of bad news, bad information, our hearts grow hardened and we are numbed to the pain and the tragedy all around us. We often feel hopeless and helpless to do anything about unjust situations. And so tragically at times, our default setting uh, is just to shrug our shoulders and move on to the next thing. And sometimes we try to even baptize our own apathy by saying something like this, that God is going to work it out. So whatever. We try to make pithy statements like that and chalk it up to faith, and that's the attitude. Again, I'm not pointing the finger at you, I'm pointing it at myself. This is not how the Bible talks about faith and its fruit. Through the gift of faith, brothers and sisters, you have been given a new heart that desires what God desires and hates what God hates. The call of the Christian is that whenever we look on tragedy and injustice, and we have a lot of opportunity to look at that stuff, we have hearts that cry out to God for His help. And this is what it means to have faith. It is not trusting in something abstract or something pie in the sky. Not just trusting in a set of ideas, it is actually trusting that God will act in a very real and concrete way according to the timing of his, will, of his will. And faith even gives us permission to ask hard questions. Because we are God's baptized children, we have the privilege to go before him in prayer, and at times we have that privilege of asking him why. Some of you might be shifting uncomfortably in your chair right now because you might think that that is not our place. We shouldn't be asking God that question. But here's the deal. It's not a question that's forbidden to our children, is it? No, they ask it all the time. And sometimes we go, 
My wife shared a meme with me this morning. Uh, you know the, the Star Wars movie um, where, spoiler alert, Yoda dies in the movie? Um, I forget which one. I think it's the, it's the third one, uh, 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 Return of the Jedi. Anyway, so uh, Luke is asking Yoda all these questions. Why? Well, how will I know? What's going to happen? Why? Why? And then what does Yoda eventually do? He rolls over and he dies. Not because he's old and tired, but because he's tired of answering Luke's questions. So that's for free. But this is what our children do with us. And this is what we're able to do with God. Why? Why would you do it like that? But it's not a question that's forbidden to us. The Bible is full of faithful believers asking God to answer for something or to do something about the tragic circumstances that they found themselves in. It happens over and over again. And they did so reverently. They didn't blaspheme God. But some were much more urgent than others. And whenever you have questions for God about why we endure so much evil and so much tragedy thrown at us at once in this life, you must know that He hears those questions and He's not put off by you asking them. And He does have an answer for them. But whether you find the answer to these questions intellectually satisfying or not is not really His concern. His concern, church, is that you be found in Christ on the last day whenever He comes for you, is that you be, you be found in Christ by resting your faith in His promise. And that is a daily rest in His faithfulness and His trustworthiness to do what He says He's going to do. That's His concern for you. Not that you have it all figured out. Not that you have an answer for every bad thing that happens, but that you be found in Christ on the last day. There was one prophet in Judah who once had these questions for, for God. It was a fellow by the name of Habakkuk. And aside from his really cool name, we don't know a lot about him. He was ministering during the dying days of Judah. Those days of judgment were quickly coming upon them. And as we've learned from many of the prophets this past summer, things in Judah, the southern kingdom, looked really rosy on the outside. They looked pretty great. The economy was booming. Uh, they had well-fortified cities. Uh, there was prosperity, material wealth um, in the kingdom. But underneath the surface, on the street level, it was the Wild West. There was a king by the name of Josiah who was the last good king of Judah. And he had brought this restoration and reform of Israel's worship practices. He tried to get rid of all of the idolatry. He tried to return the southern kingdom back to faithfulness to God. He tried to institute policies that were in accord with God's revealed uh, will for his people. He tried to do all of those things, and he did a pretty bang-up job. But within two generations, within two kings, his work was completely undone. Now you had a new king named Jehoiakim. And the societal conditions were deteriorating rapidly at a breakneck pace. And as Habakkuk walked those dusty streets every single day, all he saw was violence, contention, strife, destruction, according to chapter 1 of our reading. Such that it grieved him and it caused him to cry out to God in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1 of Habakkuk. He complains about the injustices that he sees. He asks why God isn't doing anything about it. Why does God have his hands in his pockets? And in verses 5 through 11, God answered him. God did have a plan for what was happening in his kingdom. 
It was an answer, it was a plan that Habakkuk wouldn't like. I encourage you, for devotional purposes, go read Habakkuk later. It's only three chapters. It's well worth your time, all right? So we're not going to be able to cover the entire book, but go read it. It'll take you 20 minutes max. It's a, it's a great read. What God tells the prophet is that he has been raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were this kind of newly rejuvenated Babylon, kind of a superpower all of a sudden. He was raising them up, and they were going to come into Judah, and they were going to execute God's wrath. That was God's plan. This was how God planned to deal with the evils among his people. And if your initial reaction to that is to say, God would never do that, well, you're in good company. And God knew that you would say that because what he says in verse 5 is that we would wonder and be astounded if we were told about this. And that didn't sit well with Habakkuk either, of course. So at the end of this chapter 1, he makes this second complaint, which essentially amounts to this. He says, why would you do this to your chosen people, Lord? Don't you know that we are the people of the promise? Haven't you made us these promises? Going, to, going back to whenever you called us out of slavery in Egypt? It's a fair question. And it's one that you and I would ask if we were in the same situation. It's one that we ask regularly and routinely in this life as we go about our day. Lord, do you not love me? Have you not made your promise to me? Why do so many of these things happen in my life? But then Habakkuk makes this move. And it's one that we would do well to imitate. In chapter 2, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So here's what faith means. Faith means not only having the boldness to come before God and ask him the hard questions, but it goes even further than that. Even though Habakkuk did not understand why God would use someone more evil than the, Ju than the Judeans to come in and judge this nation, he didn't quite understand that, but here's the deal. His faith compelled him to wait at the watch post. There must be something going on here. There's some, there must be something that God is up to here. I'm going to wait here and see what he says. A watch post was where you stood at the top of the city to look out and to see what kind of threats were coming your way. And boy, if there wasn't a threat headed for Judah. What Habakkuk was saying was that he had no choice. No choice. He was out of options. He had to take his stand and he had to wait for God even while he braced himself for those hard things to come. He didn't understand anything of what God was doing, but he humbly waited in quiet hope for God to answer. And we don't know how long this took. In the text, it goes from one question to God's answer. But most scholars suggest that this took a long time for Habakkuk to get his answer. It wasn't this quick conversation. It probably took place over months. But God did eventually answer. And as I mentioned before, the answer might not be intellectually satisfying to us such that we can win arguments with atheists and non-Christians and so forth. But it is the answer that God gives to us in this situation. And I would contend all situations where we struggle with what God might be doing behind the scenes, especially during hardship and suffering that you and I go through. This is the answer. 
God said to Habakkuk, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to its end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul, the soul of the Chaldean, is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous, God's people, shall live by his faith. God isn't so much interested in giving us direct answers. He's more interested in making us promises. He says that he does not lie. In fact, God cannot lie. Any prophecy that he gives comes to pass. If his help and his deliverance seem not to come when we need it, just wait for it. It will surely come. And it's not a pie in the sky, maybe, but a guarantee. God will help. He will come in a concrete way and deliver his people. He will. The promise that God gave to Habakkuk in response to his complaints was twofold. Here's what he promised to Habakkuk. First, he promises to bring judgment upon the Babylonians. He wasn't going to allow the Babylonians to bring war upon his people without bringing judgment upon them. And wouldn't you know it, 70 years later, after the Babylonian campaign, God would use another empire to judge the Babylonians. He would send the Persians in to conquer, and eventually this would lead to the, to the liberation of God's people, to them being sent back to their promised land. And this was the second promise. He was going to judge the Babylonians, and he was going to use the Persian empire to send them back. He was going to bring them back. But as good as these promises were, church, as good as that was, there was always, always the promise of a Redeemer. There was the promise of a Messiah who was to come from that same country, that same kingdom, that same tribe, the tribe of Judah. There was to be a Redeemer from the tribe of Judah who would come to the aid of an entire world in the throes of violence and destruction. And he, he would bring help and deliverance for the people who would cry out to God for mercy. And it was for the sake of that promise that God would judge the Babylonians and bring his people back to their land. God did not leave Habakkuk twisting in the wind, waiting at his watch post. He actually answered him this. He said, the righteous shall live by his faith. What makes you righteous what makes you holy in God's sight, what makes you able to endure anything that this world throws at you is because you believe in God's promise to act whenever he says that he will act. That is how you are counted holy and righteous in God's sight. It's by faith in his promise. Habakkuk had faith. Such faith that caused him by the end of the book not to be questioning God, but to praise Him. At the end of chapter 3, he says this. He says, essentially, though a million things are not going right and I can't understand them all, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And this is the last movement of faith. This is the completion. Faith 
cries out to God, at times asking why. And then faith moves us to the watch post to see how the Lord will respond. But then, faith clings to the promise whenever God gives it. It's not blind faith, but it's faith based on what God has done in the past. Whenever there's a prophecy to be fulfilled, it will come. Whenever God says he's going to do something, he will. Has he not been faithful in your life? Has he not demonstrated himself to be trustworthy in all that he does? Now on this side of the cross, we have something sure and certain to grab a hold of and stake our lives upon. Again, this is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. The Babylonian Empire Church did not stop the Messiah from coming and bringing his kingdom. The Judeans, for all of their faults and their flaws, even though they rebelled against God constantly, they could not stop God from keeping his promise to send the true king through the line of Judah. And Jesus came into human history not as a fabrication, not as an abstraction or a pie-in-the-sky idea, but in a very real and concrete way. He came, he walked those dusty streets of Jerusalem, those same streets that were riddled with violence and destruction and contention and strife in the days of Habakkuk. He subjected himself to that very violence and that injustice by dying on a Roman cross at the hands of sinful men. And three days later, he walked out of the grave as a very real promise to you, that by faith in Him, you will do the same on the last day. The death and resurrection of Jesus is proof that God knows what He's doing, even when we can't understand His ways. He knows what He's doing. God's Word assures us that He is at work for our salvation, even while we endure the evils that this world throws at us. And He is not concerned, church, with whether you agree with His methods or not. He's not concerned with that. His concern is granting you salvation by faith in Christ, and He will pull out all the stops to do it, even even if it means using the very evil that He promises to deliver us from. So as his redeemed child, you are allowed permission to wrestle. To wrestle with the injustices that you see in this world. And you may question the things that come your way in life that don't quite make sense. But for heaven's sake, don't let that be the end of it. Don't let that be the end of your faith. Take your stand at the watch post with Habakkuk, with the entire Christian church, and wait for him. Hear his promises as they come to you in the divine service, in the means of grace, that your sins are forgiven, and that for the sake of Christ, and that by faith in him, you shall not die, but you will live forever. And that there is nothing that can change that, no matter what happens this side of eternity. When God gives a prophecy, it always comes to pass. This is what he has done throughout history, and there's only one more prophecy that God has yet to fulfill. There is one more promise that he has to make good on. And because we know that Christ has died, we know that Christ is risen, this isn't just a promise, but it is a guarantee Christ will come again. As God said to Habakkuk about his promise, it will surely come. It will surely come. 
the Babylonian Empire didn't stop our Lord from coming once. Neither hell nor high water will stop him from coming again. So we wait for him at our watch post. We trust him to act. We trust him to deliver us one day. As God has said, the righteous shall live by his faith. In the name of Jesus, amen.